What time is it? Hello and welcome to the Bible Dig Godcast, a fun-filled exploration of archaeology and the Bible. And now, here are your hosts, author J.S. Earls and attorney Peter A. Paputsis. Hello everyone, it's been a while since our last episode. Uh, far too long and far too difficult for some of us. <laughs> I'm just getting over three months of pneumonia. But the pneumonia diet looks great on me. So. <laughs> He's still alive. He's still with us. Yeah. Glory to God. So where are we at? Tell our audience where we're at. Talk to my airhead here. That's air as in H-E-I-R. And Thank you. As you know, Peter is an esteemed attorney. And <laughs> he happens to have some experience in this air. In this air. <laughs> In this air, in this air, Rhea, and uh, <laughs> he's gonna talk a little bit about inheritance nowadays in America, in the West, specifically for me and my practice. I'm I'm out of the state of Illinois, but it's pretty much the same in all of the 50 states. Basically, everybody has like a general understanding of inheritance laws. It's like, you know, somebody is leaving something to somebody else. You know, usually it's a parent that's leaving property items, you know, real estate, money, whatever, cars, to their children, one child, two children, uh, three children, etc. In the state of Illinois and most of the other states, in fact, all of the other states, you have two types of inheritance. You have an inheritance form where you write it all out, you know, as we all know, the, the will, you know, that you put your, your, your intent of inheritance in a written form called a last will and testament. The reason why we do that is because in the will, you, meaning you know the father, the mother, or just you as an individual, get to decide who you want to take your property, whatever property you have. You know, it could be, you know, millions upon millions of dollars, or it could just be, you know, a Chinese vase that's not really worth anything, but it's sentimental value, and you want to give it to somebody. In a will, it does not have to be blood relatives. It could be whoever you want as a beneficiary to inherit your stuff, and and that's generally how it is. Now, if you don't have a will then you go through that state's laws of descent and inheritance, and that's called intestate inheritance, or or you're just intestate, meaning you don't have anything that's testamentary. So intestate, you know, you don't have a testamentary will. And then that just falls under um, your state's laws of probate. And that spells it all out by statute. You have no say in it. If you don't have a will, you have no say in it. It's whatever your state says, how your money, your property are to be descent, uh, distributed to your heirs, to your family heirs. That that uh, Under the law, it is uh, blood or legal ab- uh, adoption. But if you have a will, then you can do whatever you want. You can give your money to whoever you want. I mean, uh, one of the things that just popped up a few uh, months ago that my wife was uh, was making fun of me about is a state law for pets, a state law for uh, animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, like, so you want to leave Fluffy your $50 million estate. <laughs> and, you, and there's a course, there's a continuing legal education course here in the state of Illinois that you can take for pet law or pet trusts or estate planning for animals. And so, you know, I hate to say it, but people are more loving towards their animals than they are towards their family members. 
And so that's like created a whole legal area of estate and distribution and probate involving animals. And, and it's any animal. It doesn't have to be a dog or cat. It could be a snake. It could be a gopher, a, a fish or fishes. Yeah, it's that, it's that intense. But uh, those are modern inheritance laws, and, and they fall under the, uh, you know, the, uh, like the modern versions of the Model Probate Act that almost all the states have. It's anybody. It's not gender-specific. If you're a male, if you're a female, it doesn't really matter. If you have boys, you have girls, whatever your children are, just goes to them however you want it. And yeah, yeah I wanted to bring this up just because it was one of the only states that has a significantly different in some ways with the inheritance is Louisiana. I was about to say, are you going to yeah, say Louisiana? They're, they're very limited if you want to disinherit someone and not have them get your stuff. You can do it for almost any reason in a lot of the states, but in Louisiana, there's like there's only a couple reasons why they let you do that. And I mean, they actually have it in their legal system that yes. like it is really hard to disinherit someone. I was reminded of this too from my uh, comic that I wrote with Benjamin Franklin because he he did, he was going to disinherit his son, but then what he decided to do was leave his son some like extra land that he had. Mm-hmm. And then in his in the reading of his will, he had them his like lawyers or whatever say, because that's all you care about is land. <laughs> And I was like, whoa. Do you know why Louisiana is like the odd man out in the United States? Yeah, I do not know why. Why? Okay, it's because every state in the Union was founded on English common law from England. Right. Louisiana is the only state that was not founded by the English. It was founded by the French. So they uh, have always operated Uh, under French law or Napoleonic law. Right, and so that law was 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 different, slightly different than English common law. The French had no common law, from what I remember, going back, you know, college and law school. They had statutory law. They had a lot of their law codified. So by the time of Napoleon and the French era of that time, it was all spelled out. So when you say, you know, it's very hard to disinherit somebody, it's because it was spelled out centuries ago under uh, French law, and that just carried over into modern Louisiana law that was based on French law. So that's why every state in the Union is, uh, is governed, even to this day, by English common law. Even our statutory law is based on English common law to one degree or another, but not in Louisiana. Louisiana's French law. Jerry Lewis, the comedian, who disinherited his six children... Yeah. Yeah, he disinherited his six children by his first wife and and their and all of their descendants and left his entire estate to his second wife. Good job, so, Jerry. I guess he really did not like his first wife. I currently have an estate litigation case right now where I have a good number of brothers and sisters on one side fighting the spouse and the one child from the second marriage on the other side. So that's a very common thing that happens in estate litigation. And speaking of modern stuff, what is a holographic will? I used to know this. No. <laughs> well, in Illinois, I believe a holographic will is actually a handwritten will. If you look it up, I oh, believe yeah. holographic will means it's a handwritten will where you know you just basically sit down and you just write it out by hand. 
You don't go to an attorney and have him or her type it up or anything like that. You, you know, you're sitting there at your kitchen and you say, I, Joe Schmo or John Doe or whatever, John Q. Public, this is my last will and testament. I am of sound soul and mind and I leave my estate to so-and-so. But first, you got to pay my burial expenses, my, my funeral expenses, my taxes. And then after that, the corpus of my estate will go to my two sons or my one son and one daughter you know, my wife or whatever, you know, you just write it out. You just write it out by hand instead of coming and seeing somebody like me and where I type it out nice and formally with all the legalese attached to it. It's a lot less exciting than what it's, <laughs> what it sounds like. Yeah. Like holographic. Hey, eh? this is yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Holographic just means that you're doing it, that you're writing it out. Yeah. yeah. I, well, what's the proof? Cause it says that in most of the States and places there has to be evidence that the, that the person actually did write it like yeah well whether it's a holographic will or a will that's written up by an attorney the statute at least in the state of illinois and i'm pretty sure it's the same in all the other states <laughs> barring louisiana right. is that after you pass away your family has the obligation to file the will with the county within which you have passed away in that you've deceased in right so like for example if you've passed away in dupage county where i'm at you have to go down to the dupage county clerk's office at the courthouse and file the will. And that you pretty much have 30 days. You have 30 days to do that because the law says that you cannot hide it. You cannot destroy it. You cannot secret it. I think the statute says you cannot secret it away. They use some of that old language. Now, a lot of people blow that time limit away because I've had cases where the person's died and it's been like a year after they've passed away. And they're like, well, we just ran into a problem with some of the heirs and you know, we have a will. And my first question is, oh, so did you file it with the county 30 days after they passed away? And everybody's like, oh, we didn't know we had to do that. I'm like, yeah, you got to do that. So 30 days after somebody <laughs> passes away, if you have a copy of the will to prove that there was a will, you have to go file it and make it public with the county clerk at, down at the courthouse in the county that the person has passed away. And in fact, I just did that today. I have a couple examples of holographic wills, the shortest will in the world. Getting into what you're saying and describing uh, what a holographic will is. Because every time, like, I, even when I'm like seeing that or whatever, like, I, I think like video, like, this is someone who's right. videoed a thing, but it's not necessarily that. No. Um, and the holographic uh, has a different meaning than right, that. Right, right. That, yeah. Yeah, exactly. In the Guinness Book of World Records, the shortest will uh, were two check words that mean everything to my wife. And. Mm -hmm says uh, that that was written on the bedroom wall of a man who realized he was about to die so he just he wrote yeah. it he yeah. wrote it on he wrote it on the wall and then there was another one uh, up in Canada I guess and this is uh, over 50 years ago where a farmer got trapped underneath his uh, tractor and when he was trapped there he wrote in case I die in this mess <laughs> I leave all to my wife. Did what did he do? Write it on the ground and the no. Dirt? He he wrote it on the tractor's fender. Wow. So I guess that's a, that means that that's that's actually a good. Um, oh yeah, uh, yeah, and he carved it. Yeah, he carved. He carved it because I was going to say if he wrote it on the fender, I guess that's a good way of of uh, saying don't clean your tractor, leave some dirt on it, so you can write your last will and testament on it. The fender was probated and stood as his will. Yep. The Fender yep. is currently on display. Okay, anybody up in Canada or their visits, the Fender is currently on display at the Law Library of the University of Saskatchewan College of Law. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's that's it. That's it. I that's and I've had I've had holographic wills. I've had people come to my office over the years and they, they they're like, Well, this is my will. 
and it's like a one-page thing, and it basically yeah. says, leave everything to my wife and to my two kids. I'm like, oh. And they're like, can you type this up for me? And I'm like, you already did. It's called a holographic will. I mean, you've signed it. It's, uh, you know, uh, I mean, yes, it didn't meet some of the requirements because in the state of Illinois, you also have to have it notarized. You have to have it, you know, uh, two or more witnesses on it. But I go, this is a pretty good thing. You can still probate this. I mean, right, but, right. We're, but I'll make it official for you. I'll make it into a nice legalese will. Right. But I've had, I've had uh, people come in with written uh, wills or holographic wills over the years, so it's not uncommon. Uh just sounds so much cooler as holographic. Um, yeah, well, you kind of like right. It's going to be like some kind of like like steam water, with, like a picture put on it. It's going to be it's going to be Princess Leia appearing. Hope me, Obi Wan yeah. Kenobi. Here's my will. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're my I'll, only hope. I, I'll leave everything to Darth Vader. Boy, no. <laughs> yeah. so. or Darth Vader leaves everything to his kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So those. So that's basically the concept of of modern. Uh, estate planning and litigation and, you know, most of the states that uh, have the Model Probate Act. Okay, now we're going to get into uh, Genesis 15 a little bit. We're going to focus on a certain section. Uh, there's been a lot that we've covered uh, with other people and places and things uh, in this chapter um, that we've already covered in previous episodes, so we don't want to like just rehash all those things. We're going to get into now uh, a little bit of the inheritance discussion that Abram has with God. So this is Genesis chapter 15. And again, I'm reading from the old Revised Standard Version, which I like. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me, for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. So he's got somebody so far, according to their inheritance laws at this time. And Abram said, Behold, thou hast given me no offspring, and a slave born in my house will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, meaning Eleazar of Damascus. Your own son shall be your heir. So Isaac hasn't been born yet. This is setting everything up for Isaac that we're going to read later on. And he brought him outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord in it, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness, because he just believed him. That was it. He just put all of his faith in God at that point. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And okay, so from verse 6 to verse 7, you have a little bit of a change now from you haven't given me an heir, now you're giving me possession. Now you wanted to, to, to give me an inheritance of something else, not just an heir who's going to carry something on for me, but now you want to give me something, a possession. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a she-goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in two, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So it's very interesting now that we're actually getting into a covenant. Right. We're, getting into yeah. a, we're getting into a last will and testament because this is what we would call in the law consideration. Like you've now made me an offer, you know, that you're going to possess, the, that you're going to give me an heir, that you're going to give me this possession. 
I'm acknowledging it, but to actually have this covenant, this this contract, if you will, this will between us, we need consideration. What is the consideration? The birds, the sacrifices, the heifer, the she-goat. So this is a contract. He's actually entering into a contract with Abraham. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and lo, a dread and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know of a surety that your descendants will be sojourners or travelers in a land that is not theirs and will be slaves there, and they will be oppressed for 400 years. This is setting up the Exodus story, you know, with the enslavement in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation which they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, which if you've heard our past Bible digs, you know that Abram is buried in Hebron. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. That's interesting. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, there you go, saying, to your descendants I give this land. Now check this out. This is the actual possession of the land from God to Abraham. Now check how, what we're talking about here as far as Israel, if we're going to say that, you know, the land of Abraham. Right. To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt. To the great river, the river Euphrates. That's all the way in Iraq. The land of the Kenites and the Kerizzites and the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim. Well, there's the Rephaim again, those giants. The Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So in this chapter, not only do we have God and Abraham entering into a covenant, into a, a last will and testament, if you will, a descent agreement, but it tells us two things. It tells us one, You're going to have a son that's going to be your heir, that's going to get all of this, and all of this that you're getting is this land that I'm giving you. And if you notice, and what is that? That's uh, verse 18. That's not the land of Canaan. That's the land of Canaan plus. Right, yeah. Uh, which, you know, not to get into anything that's going on today, but now you can understand why you've had tensions with Israel and Egypt and Iran and Iraq because that cuts into a lot of country right there. That's something that's still playing out in modern-day politics to this day between Israel, Egypt, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, etc. So anyway, keep that in the back of your minds. But there you go. That's your uh, estate planning between God and Abraham. Going back to uh, way up in the verse, I guess this is a good place for you to explain this. This is one that came across this, and I still don't understand it. Um, but I was like, and I'm just asking Pete. I was like, is this a, like this is fascinating? But is this a thing? And he's like, yes, it's a thing. And so he sends me all this Greek stuff that I can't read. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, this may be proof, but I can't read Greek. <laughs> oh, like, are you talking about when I sent you that, that Greek verse or yeah. in, the, in the Old Testament and the Septuagint? And I said, hey, here it is. And yeah. you're like, uh, yeah, uh, that would be great if I, if I, <laughs> if I read Greek. Yeah. Um, All right. But yeah, and, and what we're talking about is uh, way up back in verse 2, where Abram's talking to God, that he goes childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And I'm like... Just wait a second. Like, that's not even his family. So, right. but it said um, in a lot of the stuff that I was reading that the original language lent it to an interpretation that what that actually means is that his inheritance would go to the city of Damascus or the town of Damascus. 
Damascus. Yes, it would go to Damascus. So, so what's the deal, and and why was why were his uh, this eminent domain? Um... <laughs> <laughs> the the Septuagint in this point, when we're talking about the first five books of Moses, are very literal. I mean, whoever uh, uh, translated it, um, you know, from from uh, Hebrew into Greek was very literal, uh, and so. It doesn't say, you know, my heir is Eleazar uh, of Damascus. It pretty much says of my. It says of my house is Damascus of Eleazar or ah. the city of Damascus. Um, and so, if you look at, uh, if you look at the Septuagint at the end, it it says, Aftos Dimascos Eleazar. So this Damascus of Eleazar or this house uh, of Damascus of Eleazar. So, so it's Damascus that's being focused on more than Eleazar. It's like Eleazar is like describing it, but it's really Damascus that is the main focus. So, and I think you sent it here that it's not just in the Septuagint, but it's also in the Syriac, the Targums, the Samaritan Pentateuch, that it reads, Abram calls Eleazar one born in my house, i.e. a dependent, a member of his household, and so regards him as his heir. Eliezer is probably the servant, the elder of his house, that ruled over all that he had. So, But this goes back to Damascus. This guy is in Damascus. Of my house is Damascus of Eliezer. So this, so this could be not necessarily going to one person, which is Eliezer, but right. going to the house of Eliezer that's in Damascus. So it's not to the city of Damascus? Then? A possible but unlikely reading is that his property would become the possession of Damascus, the city of Eleazar. So it could be a reference to the city of Eleazar, to the house of Eleazar that's in that's in Damascus. But what, what what you're getting at here, it's not going to one person. It's it's going back to Damascus in one form or another, either into a municipality, into a city of Damascus, or Damascus itself, because Abram has no direct heir except for these servants that are part of his overall family. Because remember, he's a, he's a semi-nomadic tribal chief at this point. And the only direct heir that he has is this, these slaves that are directly related to Damascus, to the house of Eleazar. And so they would get everything. Everything that would be his, according to the Bible, would go to them. And by them, it could also transfer right back to Damascus. We're not talking about a major metropolitan city at this time. We're still talking right. about semi-nomadic people. So, yeah, that's something that's supported by the Targums, that's supported by the Septuagint, that's supported by the Syriac version. So, even the Hebrew. It's only, it's only when we get into the English that it starts to change it a little bit to actually identify it with an actual individual called Eleazar, where in the Hebrew, the Greek, the Samaritan, the Syriac, the Targum Aramaics, no, it's being, call, it's being referenced to a town, a municipality, a house in Damascus that's associated with Damascus. So everything that would be Israel's would be transferring up north to, uh, to Damascus, to Syria. And, and God, God said, no, that's not going to happen. So then, according to um, Jewish law at that time, it had to be, because he's married, but it wouldn't go to his wife. Yeah, because he it, has it no would, children. He has no children, so then it has to be blood, or it has to be... Well, um, it's not even that, no, because remember what I said earlier, you know, there, that in modern probate law, there is no gender exclusion. Right. But in, but in Jewish law... And, Jewish inheritance law. And we will it, say in a lot of 
historic law. It's very male-oriented. Very male-oriented. In fact, you didn't start having cracks in that until well into the Middle Ages. And even then, it was it was uh, still very male-heavy because it all started from the Jewish inheritance law, which is very patriarchal or patrilineal, as it's called, that it goes from father to son, father to son, father to son. And the only time daughters would get any of their father's inheritance would be if the father didn't have any sons. And so it wouldn't fall out of his family. It would have to go to his daughters, okay, to his to his female children. But even then, and this comes up later, and I believe it's in the, um, uh, it's either in Exodus or Numbers. No, it's in Numbers. It's in Numbers. What if those daughters marry men that are outside of the tribes, you know, one of the tribes, one of the 12 tribes of Israel at the time? Well, guess what? Their inheritance would go through the male line, would go through their husbands, and then go to their male children. So it would, it would, it would not just theoretically, but practically leave Israel, leave the 12 tribes of Israel, and go off into, you know, what do you want to call it, Gentile hands, yeah. heathen hands, goyim hands, whatever you want to call it. And so numbers, they make it a rule that, yeah, you're not even supposed to marry outside of your tribe. Not just not outside of your, your you know, the, the Israelite Semitic race, not outside of your tribe. So if you're of the tribe of Manassas, wow. you got to marry within the tribe of Manassas. If you're of the tribe of Judah, you got to marry within Judah. So, and it was all because of inheritance. You know, we wanted to keep it all in the family, keep it all in the tribe, keep it all within the nation. These inheritance laws then, as up to very recently, were very patriarchal. Just to give you an, uh, a quick little indication of that, in all of our English Bibles, when we talk about the nation of Israel, what do we say? You know, Moses led the children of Israel out of bondage, right? Moses led the children of Israel out of bondage. Well, if you go back to the original Hebrew and the original Greek and any version outside of English, it doesn't say children of Israel. It says the sons of Israel. So females were not even considered to be in the main uh, descent of any of the promises or inheritances of uh, the nation of Israel. This actually becomes somewhat of a revolutionary act when Jesus comes along and his descent, but I'm not going to go there. We're just going to keep it right now with, uh, with the inheritance laws under Jewish law at that time. Well, I was actually going to bring up that, that you had mentioned that this is one reason why the genealogies of Jesus are so important is because yes. it, it shows Jesus's inheritance. It shows Jesus's inheritance of the throne of David. It shows not just the, the inheritance of Jesus because it's based on, on, on the uh, patriarchal line, which is what's really being emphasized with the genealogy in Matthew. But if people remember from their Bibles, the house of David, specifically the line of David, King David, was hit with a curse. I can't remember when, and I don't remember the, the, the biblical passage right now, but it was hit with a curse that would stay with his direct lineal line. Not with his descendants, but with his direct lineal line. And it's somewhere in the, in the latter half of the, of the Old Testament. I got to do some research and maybe we'll post it on, on Bible Dig when I get it. But when you get to Luke's genealogy, Luke, who by the way was a Gentile, knew of that and wanted to find out how does Jesus get the throne of David, but avoids the curse that was put upon David's direct lineal line. You know, So how does he get this inheritance, but how does he avoid the curse at the same time? Because that, that curse, if you read it in the Old Testament, and again, I'll get you the, the biblical verse for it, says it's perpetual. It doesn't go anywhere. 
it stays with David's direct lineal line. Right. Well, what happened is that David was not the only member of the house of David. Do you remember who David's brother was? Nathan? I yeah. think it was Nathan. Yeah. Okay. But you, uh, read the genealogy in Luke, and you don't find David in Jesus's genealogy, but you find Nathan. And then the question is, well, 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 what's going on here? Why do you have Nathan popping up instead of David? And the reason is Jesus has to be in the direct lineal line of the house of David, but cannot be in the direct lineal line of King David because he has to avoid the curse. So how does he do it? He goes through Nathan. And Nathan is the bloodline that Mary, his mother, comes from. Uh, yeah. A lot of people think that it's just Joseph, but it's not Joseph. Because remember what we said back in Numbers 36, that you have to marry within your tribe, marry within your family. So Joseph would have taken Mary as his betrothed, as his wife, because they were within the same tribe. They were within the same family. And so Mary gives Jesus his direct physical bloodline descent from the house of David, but avoids the curse of King David. And therefore, Jesus gets all of the inheritance, but none of the curse. And that ties into Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that says that Jesus is the direct lineal descendant of blood by, by the flesh of David. And that's how you do it. A nice little archaeological aspect is that there is a parchment, or I guess a law book, called the Baba Bathra that was written during the late antiquity in Babylon and deals extensively with issues of property ownership and inheritance according to Jewish law and other rabbinic laws such as the Hilkhat Naholat, the Mesafer Mishnah Torah, Laha Rabam, wow, that's a mouthful, and the Sefer Hayura Shat. Anyway, to get to the point of it, this ancient codex of lineal descent or, you know, probate started in the Baba Bathra and started with the Bible and started with the Babylonian Talmud that talked about descent and distribution. But one of the things that remained constant from Jewish times to Christian times, even Islamic times, is that it was very male-oriented. It was not just because of Christianity or Judaism or Islam. Greek culture had that. Babylonian culture had that. Roman culture had that. And all of European law is based on Roman law, which was based on Greek law, which was based on Jewish and Babylonian law, to a part, to an extent. And it was all very male-oriented. And you didn't have a break in that until... You started seeing breaks during the Middle Ages, but you didn't finally have a full break until well into uh, the 19th century. So that's 19 centuries of male-dominated inheritance laws. There were cultures that did have matrilineal, is that yes. Right? Uh, yes. where it goes through the mother and daughters, and most of them are Native American. Right. And the Cherokee and the Choctaw and a bunch of those, then some down in Panama and South America, even some Muslims and Tamils in eastern Sri Lanka. There are some Muslim groups that actually favor women more than some of yes. the other groups. Yes. Yeah, because in Islam, you know, here in the West, we only think of Sunnis and Shia. Right. Just, you know, yep. kind of like what, kind of like we only think of like Catholics and Protestants. Right. And we, and we forget there's, there's other Christians. There's a lot of other Muslim faith traditions. Right. For example, I know in Turkey, there is Sufism, which is the most, the more mystical part of Islam. There's also another type of Islam that actually has men and women praying together in the same mosque, which is unheard of right. under Sunni and Shiite Islam. So keep in mind that just as Christianity is diverse, 
Islam is diverse. And there's not just Sunni and Shia. There's a lot of other Muslims out there that actually are more matriarchal than patriarchal, or at least more on the gender equality when it comes to inheritance. A little side note, there was a culture, a very ancient steppe culture, meaning the steppes of Russia, that seemed to have been, through archaeological evidence, matriarchal. What's interesting about that, the reason why I bring that up, is not because it's matriarchal in its culture, but because the women were the leaders of this society along the Russian steppes, and they were depicted in their archaeological findings as riding on horseback, shooting arrows with bows, and throwing spears, and doing all of the hunting and the killing, and there'd be surrounding towns. They would find out from local lore there on the steps, the Caucasus, that they would invade male-dominated towns to take male husbands, or at least, you know, men that, that they have children with, and because they didn't want to have a predominance of males in their culture. And they started to find these grave mounts that were predominantly females. They were buried with their horses, they were buried with their armor, they were buried with their swords, they were jewelry, and it was very matriarchal. And all of their descent, their inheritance was all based from mother to daughter. And what was interesting about that is that when they started to grade the archaeological findings of these mounds, it corresponded with a lot of the stories that the Greeks had of the ancient Amazons of that time. So it's nice to see that there's some archaeological evidence for the myth of the Amazons. They may not be mythic. They may actually be based in a, in a very healthy dose of reality. Nice. Yeah. Another interesting aspect of the Jewish law is that the firstborn sons would get a double portion compared to everyone else. So if there were like nine sons, then the first son gets basically like number one and number 10 or whatever. Like he, he gets a double portion of whatever it is, how much, um, which it, it was interesting. And it's funny when I, I know when I was reading up on that, uh, something that I didn't even consider. And I know it's probably just a parable that Jesus used and wasn't based on a real story. But if it, even if, if it was, it was the younger son that asked for his inheritance. The prodigal son. Yeah. The prodigal yeah son. And he couldn't just give his younger son like the inheritance, like he had to do it all at once. So he would have given his older son his double portion at that time. So the older son would have gotten two thirds uh, when the older, when the younger son was whining for it. But as wealthy as it seemed like the younger son was, there was still his older son got twice as much as he did. To the Hebrew people at that time and people that were familiar with the Jewish laws at that time, that probably said something too, you know, that he's, you know, he got twice as much, but he was, you know, 10 times more faithful <laughs> than, than, the young, than the young son. Well, you know, that's, that's an interesting story. The prodigal son story is directly tied into what you just said in regards to the inheritance. The older son is depicted as being faithful, would have received a double portion. But the focus of the story is on the younger son. Right. Right? And how the father lavished the younger son, loved the younger son, and, yeah. you know, met him halfway as the younger son was coming and, you know, put rings on his fingers and had a feast. And, and now you have, like, at the end of the story, right, you have the older son coming to the father and saying, you know, you never did that for me. You know, I stayed here. I was faithful. I did this. I did that. And, you know, and, and the father said, listen, your younger son was lost but now is found. So people know that in the early church, that that was viewed as the passage of the covenant from the Jewish people to the Christian people, that the younger son was viewed uh, as the Gentiles, that God was saying the Gentiles were lost and now they are found. Yeah, you know, yeah, you've stayed faithful to me, but you weren't rebellious like they were, Right. you know, and now I'm bringing them in. Now yeah. I'm going to have the, the covenant with them. 
and what you read in the story and it's and it's really like a like a little subtext there is that the older son is like a little jealous you know it's like yeah, he's being yeah. a little whiny and god's saying you know cuz the father the father is to be allegory of god god the father saying you know listen stop whining you've had everything you've had the double portion but you weren't lost they were lost right. and i'm going to get them they're coming towards me but i'm but they haven't gone the whole way so i'm going the rest of the way and i'm getting them and I'm going to put rings on their fingers, and I'm going to have a feast for them, which is also allegorical for the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, and the rings on their fingers, which is, you know, that, that I'm making them precious and holy. So that was a story of the passage of the covenant from Jewish to Christian, that now those that were lost have now been found. So that's, and again, it's all based on inheritance. It's all based on descent. But it's in that story, you have a twist that you have God showing favor for the younger son because he was lost and now he's found and I'm getting him because guess what he's still my son he may be my younger son but he's still my son and I'm going to go bring him in that's the whole story of, of the Christian message and that's one of the reasons if not some have argued the reason why Jesus was saying that story so do you have any recommendations for any of this stuff inheritance or, or anything uh well you know what hey if you want to go look at your local inheritance laws they're all online you know just google your state's inheritance laws especially if you're in louisiana those are very interesting oh, yeah. laws <laughs> so yeah i would recommend looking up uh your local state's uh probate act the model probate act look up uh louisiana and how uh it was based on french napoleonic law uh, European continental law that's different from the English common law that's enforced in the other uh, 49 states. Look up the Babylonian Codex. Look at the Talmud and their inheritance laws. Look at the Torah, the first five books of Moses. Look up that fender that the guy wrote his uh, holographic will on. <laughs> you can also look up everything that we've talked about before with about the Egyptians and the, uh, the Greeks and the Romans. They all have their inheritance laws online. One of the main pieces of law that our modern laws are based on is called the Code of Justinian. You can check that out. That's on Wikipedia. So if you are an insomniac, or very interested, I guess you can read that. And another recommendation is that when we go back to that Eleazar of Damascus, you know, like I said, the English Bibles that we have talk about an Eleazar of Damascus, like a person. Right. Whereas when you get into the original Hebrew and Greek and the other languages, it talks about the house of Eleazar in the city of Damascus. If you're interested, it's up to you guys. You can do whatever you want. Uh, but I would highly recommend two things. I would I would invest, if you can, in the reader's edition of a Hebrew Bible, which is published by Henderson Press. There is now a reader's edition of the Septuagint in two volumes, which is very affordable through christianbooks.com. And then also there's a ton of reader's editions of the New Testament. And you can get, again, that through Amazon, Henderson, Christian Books. But if you don't want to do that and you want to stay on the free side, not cheap side, but the free side, your smartphone. There's a ton of biblical aids for the Hebrew, the Greek, the Aramaic on your smartphone. You can Google it, go onto Bible Hub, and you can look at the original languages, and they're all parsed out for you, and you have great English definitions, parsing, the whole thing. For more info on the Bible Dig Godcast, please visit the Bible Dig Facebook page, where you'll discover a treasure trove of photos, the latest archaeology finds, and our monthly Bible study. And remember, when in doubt, just get diggy with it. And remember, Bible Dig's key word is Slavific. I'm going to get a t-shirt that says that. Yeah, we got to do some t-shirts. Yeah, and coffee mugs. 
coffee mugs. Yeah, headbands. Do they still have headbands? No, that's like an 80s thing. We don't do headbands anymore.